Let's just pray again, and then we are going to, um, we're just going to part two of our Christmas, um, or lead into Christmas. So, Father, we just want to pray, Lord, we, we come again to your word as we remember your birth, and all that means, Father, that you would, would speak to us, Lord, through your word. We ask in Jesus' precious name. Amen. So, last week as we began our run-up to Christmas, we and um, looked at some of the Old Testament prophecies that pointed to the coming of Jesus the Messiah. Um, but this is the only evidence, of course, for the coming Messiah. So we also see prophetic examples in the lives of many of God's people in the Old Testament. And unknown to them, they foreshadowed, they heralded, they were the early indicators of a coming Savior. Today we're going to look at some of them, and, and hence the title, which is Messiah Prefigured. But before I get into some biblical examples, let me explain in terms of maybe a more personal example. So, my nephew is 14 years old, he is my twin brother's son, but he looks very much like me. In making the glasses, his glasses are very similar to mine, but he is, he is very much like me. And I see in him a glimpse of a 14-year-old me in Ben. Now, I, I know most of you are probably feeling sorry for him already, but you don't think to. Um, because although there are many similarities between me and him, I've got to admit he's a lot more trendy, a lot more confident than I ever was as a 14-year-old teenager. And he, in essence, is Keith. Prefigured. Just a much cooler version. In computing terms, he would be Cooper 2.1. And so when we come into the scriptures, we see many messianic examples of this or this type of thing throughout the scriptures. So we start actually begins right in the book of Genesis at the very start with the life of Adam, who Paul calls the first Adam, and of course refers to Jesus as the second Adam. We say that Melchizedek, king of Salem, who was the priest of the Most High God, who met and who blessed Abraham, but he is also seen as the foreshadow of Jesus. In fact, the book of Hebrews describes Jesus as a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. But perhaps two of the most vivid pictures of men who give us this powerful glimpse of Christ are Isaac and Jonah. They not only point to Jesus, but they actually dramatically portray the reason why he came into this world, the Word who became flesh and dwelt among us. So let's begin with Isaac. Now, of course, to begin with Isaac, the story of Isaac begins with his father, Abraham, and at 80 years old, he and his wife are, are, are waiting for a son, the pain of, of waiting for childbirth, or for a child to be born can be devastating. And only those who, I guess, who struggle with not having children understand something of this. And Rachel and I, Rachel and I certainly know something of this. We lived for the deep longing for over five years before Zala was eventually conceived and unborn. But our experience is insignificant compared to that of Abraham. 
Yet in a miraculous way, at the age of 100, God provided a child. His wife became pregnant when it was physically and medically impossible because of her age. This truly was a miraculous baby. But if you know the story of Abraham, you'll know that God then asked Abraham to give up all his dreams. His future hopes could be shattered if he chooses to obey God. So we'll read some verses. This is Genesis 22, verse 1. It begins, after, those, after these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here am I. He said, take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. So he arose early in the morning, standing his donkey, took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac, and he cut the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. Now it's easy to miss, of course, the pain, the emotional turmoil that certainly Abraham must have been experiencing, yet he does exactly what God asks him without any apparent, ar any apparent arguments, any hesitation, any complaints, any questioning. Few of us, I guess, follow Abraham's example. But when God speaks, we need to listen. He speaks in many different ways. He speaks through the Holy Spirit. He speaks through circumstances. He speaks through other people. But the primary way in which God speaks to us is through his scriptures. And God has given us his word in written form. All 66 books of it, 1,189 chapters, 31,170 verses, 807,361 words. I count them all. They're there. And Listen, you really cannot argue that God does not speak to you today. There's so much in there. It's God's inspired, infallible, written word. You will meet God through this book. You'll meet Jesus in the pages of this book. The Holy Spirit will speak to you through this book. And if you want to hear from God, you need to be spending time reading, studying, and meditating on the word of God. Listening to God is a deliberate choice to shut out the noise of our busy lives. King David, author of most of the book of the Psalms, wrote, Let the morning bring the word of your unfailing love. Psalm 143, verse 8. And I really don't care so much when you spend time alone with God, but I want to encourage you this Christmas time and get into the new year to make time to spend in his presence and spend time in God's word. So you, you will not truly hear from God if you do not become saturated in his word, listening to his Holy Spirit. So make time for it. Make time, make it a priority, study it, teach it to your children, memorize it, love it. As you hear from God, faith will grow within you. But back to our story, verse 4. Well, the third day Abraham lifted up his eyes and he saw the place from afar. And Abraham said to his young man, said to his young men, Stay here with Duncan. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. So Abraham leads his servants, he significantly tells them, 
we will return. Before even before Abraham even walks up that mountain, his expectation is that he is going to return with his son. I don't think for a moment he knows how that's going to happen, but he does know God. And he knows that God has promised that this son will be, out of the son will be a great nation will be born. So even though it doesn't make sense, after all, if he goes ahead with a sacrifice, his dream is going to be ended. But Abram knew God had promised. And God had never failed him. So Abram does not put his hope in his son, he puts his hope in God. And God is the God of the impossible. And faith comes not just from hearing, but from believing the promises of God. So listen, if you put your hope in anything else other than the unchangeable, rock-solid power of God, you will fail. Your hope is not in your spouse, or in your boyfriend, or girlfriend, it's not in your family, it's not in your job. These things, they will come and they will go. You put your hope in the only one who does not change, who gives absolute security, who loves you unconditionally. You put your hope in Jesus Christ. Verse 6. And Abram took the wood of the burnt offering, he laid it on Isaac his son, and he took in his hand the fire and the knife. So they went, both of them together, and Isaac said to his father Abraham, My father, and he said, Here am I, my son. He said, Behold the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they went both of them together. I'm wondering how he was feeling in that moment. His son calls for him, confused, questioning over the issue of the missing lamb, to, to walk all that way and to forget about the lamb, the very purpose of their journey seems very bad planning at best, and the alternative is unthinkable. Yet Abram again shows his trust in God. Hebrews chapter 11 and 19 it sheds some light on what's going on in Abram's mind. It says, He considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. And Abram's faith allows him to believe in the miraculous. And even in this dark situation, in fact, even the darkest situations in your life, leave a door open of faith for God to perform a miracle. In your pain, believe for a miracle. It may seem insanely impossible. In fact, sometimes trusting God and obeying his word, even when it cuts us deep, seems just so crazy. But faith only becomes genuine when you live it out. And Abraham trusted in God, and God's grace was confirmed through his actions. No one accidentally becomes a man or a woman of faith. You don't accidentally stumble into godliness. It requires a heart that every day seeks to hear from God and chooses to obey Him. Verse 9. When they came to the place from which God had told him, Abraham built the altar there and led the wood in, in, in order and bound Isaac his son and led him off the altar on top of the wood. Then Abram 
reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham, and he said, Here am I. He said, Do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him, for now I know that you fear God, seeing that you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him was a ram caught in the thicket by his horns. And Abraham went out and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord will provide. As it said to this day, on the mount of the Lord it shall be provided. And this story confirms Abram's fear of God and also the grace and the faithfulness of God, a God who provides. But as we've already hinted at, there is a significantly deeper and more powerful meaning that lies in the center of this whole story because it sets this glorious picture, a shadow of the grace and the love of God that all of Scripture is pointing to. Verse 14, on the mount of the Lord it shall be provided, and God's provision on this mountain was miraculous, a mountain that one day would become the location of the temple of Jerusalem, but of course it's pointing to a greater moment, to a much more significant moment. I guess the person who's most thankful for that ram <coughs> was a young boy called Isaac. See, he hoped he owed his life to a lamb who died in his place. He was helpless, but God provided. He faced death, yet he received life. And of course, those of you who know your Bibles very well, you will know the significance of the lamb and, and who it represents. In fact, it is succinctly summed up by the words of John the Baptist when he saw Jesus. He spoke out these profound words. He says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And what happened on the top of that mountain at the beginning of the Old Testament is an incredible picture of Jesus' redemptive work as Jesus Christ became the substitute man. This is because of our sin. We are in exactly the same predicament as Isaac. We've all done things, we've said things that deserve God's punishment and His righteous anger. Your own efforts are never going to save you, but God has provided a lamb to take your punishment. And Jesus Christ is the Lamb of God. Of course, Christmas is the celebration of Jesus' birth, but there is, even over the manger where Jesus was born, there is the shadow of the cross. And Jesus, who grew up to live a perfect life, the guy who never sinned, fulfilled the scriptures and absolute obedience to his father, but he was unique, he was unjustly treated, he was whipped, he was bitten, he was mocked, he was sentenced to death in the most horrific of ways, and Though he was completely innocent of any wrong, he was hung on a wooden cross and he died. And we see the demand for sacrifice and the provision of God that go hand in hand. 
Hebrews 9, verse 22, it says that without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. That is why Jesus was born. That is why he had to die, why he died in your place. Listen, it was either him or you. So either by faith you accept Jesus Christ into your life, or you face eternal death and hell alone. And the hope of Christmas is all wrapped up in Jesus Christ. It's all about him, and it's all in him. In Ephesians chapter 2, 13, it says, But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. And God has made a way that your hearts can be changed. And it's not through hard work, it's not through religion, it's not through self-effort, it is through Jesus Christ. The truth is that no matter how hard you try, you can't fight sin in your own strength. That is why you must go to the cross of Jesus. He paid this huge price for sin by his blood. He died once and for all for your sin and for mine. So that you must come to him by faith. Repent of your sin, repenting of religious attitudes, you ask Jesus to forgive you and to make you clean. By his grace, in the power of his spirit, sin is put to death. This is the wonderful news, this is the gift that came down at Christmas, the word who became flesh. Only Jesus can change your heart. Because chapter 1, it tells us that we have been taken out of the kingdom of darkness and we brought into the kingdom of light. In Ephesians, we're told we're brought from death into life. This is a supernatural heart change. It comes through faith in Jesus. It's the transforming work of the Holy Spirit. It's what Jesus refers to as being born again. He is your only To reinforce this idea of this prefigured Messiah, let's look at another example, and that example is the story of Jonah. Now, again, some of you probably will know the story quite well, but the book of Jonah is a little bit like a reality show. We get this brief sort of opportunity to um, step into the life of this man. A life that wouldn't look out of place on our TV screens or something like I'm a celebrity getting out of here. And what we see in this snapshot is probably the worst two weeks in the life of Jonah the prophet. It's a story about a man's journey with God, a man on the run. And Jonah was a prophet who loved his people, Israel. <coughs> and God's word has come to him and he's told him to warn his enemies, the Assyrians who are opposing and oppressing Israel for years. And, and Jonah being a strong nationalist, defender of his people, he's making a very strong political and social statement, and he runs away. <laughs> and more than that, he's trying to manipulate God because he knows that God is merciful and the last thing that Jonah wants was for his enemies to be saved. He knew that no one is beyond the reach of God's salvation. And most of us, I guess, have developed our own methods of escapism. Some people bury themselves into their work. Other people, for others, it's TV and social media that's their escapism. Others drink too much. People try to escape from life and to escape from God. 
And God wants to remind you this morning that you cannot escape from his presence. You go to the mountains, he's there. Says so you go to the depths of the oceans, he's there. Jonah will come as well. See, you cannot escape any more than Jonah could. And Jonah gives it a really good try, however. And this is really when the story gets very interesting because as Jonah goes in for this death swim, as he, he's heading away from God, he's on his boat, the storm kicks off, he goes over the boat into the water, the impossible happens, and science and faith meets head on. I'm not going to take time this morning to investigate the possibilities if a man can survive inside a fish or even what type of fish that may have been. But let me just say this that Jonah deserves death. He even wanted death. Instead, he is miraculously saved. He's swallowed by a great fish. So Jonah, who's on the money from God and from the word of God, he refuses to repent and now he finds himself in a state of absolute, complete helplessness. Just in one moment, God can humble us. He can take us to the point of complete dependency on him. But it was from that impossible place that Jonah cries out to God. And Jonah's prayer is, is quite interesting because Jonah actually prays very few words of his own. He puts together something like 15 different psalms and he prays scripture. Listen, in those moments in your life when you feel unable to open your Bibles, when, when just it may be through physical illness or through emotional distress, you need to have something in store for those times. Just like Abraham, just like Jonah, you need to be listening, to be believing, and to know God's word. But also, you must obey. To make it your daily practice to read, to study, to meditate on the scriptures all that you can. So in those times of testing and failure come, and they will, the Holy Spirit will bring back to your memory the very words of God. And as you open your mouth in desperate prayer, you may not be able to pray any words of your own, but you begin to pray scripture that is planted deep within your heart. There is no better way to pray. But as you pray, also remember that no one is beyond the rich God's salvation. For Jonah, God turned up in the most unlikely place in a stinky, smelly fish. Listen, there comes a moment in everyone's life when they must face up to the reality of their sin and repent of them and experience the resurrection power of Jesus. And the Bible says that we must die to the old self. Jesus puts it like this in Luke chapter 9. He says, if anyone comes after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. And we must put sin to death. Listen, if you try to do this, you'll know you can't. Self-will doesn't work. Simply saying no is not enough. That is why we need Jesus. That is why the cross is central to the message of our faith. Without the cross of Jesus, we have no hope, we have no forgiveness, we have no healing. But all of this has been prefigured. 
Whereas the story of Isaac points to this vivid picture of Jesus as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of this world, however, Jonah prophetically and symbolically points to Jesus Christ's resurrection. For three days, Jonah is buried as goose dead in the belly of a fish, which ends in this miraculous resurrection part as Jonah is puked out onto a beach. It may have been messy, it's pretty disgusting, but I don't think Jonah cared. Because God had given life back to one repentant sinner. Now when Jesus was taken down from the cross and buried in a borrowed tomb, everyone thought it was the end. Hope was gone, but neither death nor Satan could hold Jesus. So when after three days the miraculous power of God victoriously raises the sinless Jesus back to life, he brought life to millions of sinful men and women who in faith repent and turn to God. When Jesus rose, he ripped apart the power of death, he destroyed the enemy, and victoriously he brings life. So we can shout in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, Death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? Listen, our victory is through our Lord Jesus Christ. Isn't that wonderful? That's our hope. And the wonderful message of Christmas is not the birth of a baby, wonderful as that is, but is the mysterious, the divine incarnation of God entering our world to save us from death. There is no greater display of love. And all of this, all of this has been foretold, has been foreshadowed, has been prefigured. So John can read, or John can declare, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. That is the amazing news this Christmas. God came down. It's woven throughout the Old Testament. It's prophetically promised. It's powerfully demonstrated in the lives of Jonah, in the life of Isaac, and so many more. And it brings hope and it brings purpose. And it's a constant reminder this Christmas that no one, no one, not even you, is beyond the reach of God's salvation. And we celebrate and we worship. Let's stand together. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. Lord, we just, in your presence, Lord, we just say, thank you, Jesus, that you came. Thank you, Lord, that you have done so much in our lives already. Thank you, Lord, that this message, this hope, this gospel is not just for us, but, Lord, it's for our community outside these walls. It's for our city. It's for our nation. Lord, it goes so much further than our little lives. But, Lord, we thank you to trust our lives as well. Thank you, Lord Jesus, you have saved us. Lord, thank you our hope is secure. Thank you for the resurrection power of Jesus Christ. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that you died on the cross in my place. You died to take my sin. You died that I may have and know you that I may come near. Thank you, God, that you have come near to me. 
Thank you, our hope is certain in you. And Father, this Christmas time, we pray, Holy Spirit, come and just refresh us. Come and just fill us again. Come and just give us what we need, Lord God, in you. But Father, we pray as we spend time with you, we spend time in your word, Lord, that you would speak just fresh revelation over our lives, over our church. Father, that we may honor you in all that we do. We ask in Jesus' name. And Father, I want to pray as well, Lord, for tonight, Lord, as we just look forward to the carol service, Lord, we sing the carols together, but Lord, for those that will come in, there are people who perhaps friends who would normally come along to a church gathering like this, Father, we pray in Jesus' name that you, by your Spirit, would speak to them. We want to pray, Lord Jesus, that you would do a work of wonderful, transforming grace in people's lives, Lord, both this morning, but also tonight, and the Lord. Father, we pray for our family and friends, Lord, if they said they're coming, Father, that they would be able to get along, but Lord, you would speak clearly and directly. Holy Spirit, we need you. So Lord, to me, to me and others, help us receive even now. Thank you. Thank you, Jesus. And Lord, we say you're, you're worthy. Emmanuel, God with us. You are worthy of all grace and all honor. Amen. Amen. Amen.